so I'm gonna I'm gonna start um, by reading a liturgy from this book, which is called Every Moment Holy. Has anyone seen this before? It's really great. It has prayers for all kinds of occasions. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read the a liturgy before beginning a book. And I guess we could also say it's a liturgy before beginning a lecture on books. <laughs> so author of life and author of my life. As I begin the reading of this book, give me a sensitivity to listen, not just to the story told, but to the responses of my own heart, to what I encounter in these pages. What does it draw out of me? What joy, what longing, what fears, what temptation, what hope, what mirth, what love of beauty, what awe, what wonder, what doubt, what faith, what resolve, what unfinished grief, what untended wound. Give me ears to hear, O Spirit of God, what notes the reading of the story would strike and what melody it would draw forth from the tuned strings of my own soul. Waste no moment in my brief years, O Lord. Let all things, and this book as well, be as tools in your hands to shape me and make me more truly your own, more fitly a child of the hope of the restoration of all things in Christ, whose fullness dwells within them. So let the honest responses of my heart to this reading or lecture Grant new insight into the story your grace is already telling in my own life, that I might be a more willing co-laborer in that process. Amen. So the title of this lecture is Truth by Fiction, How Telling Tales Helps Us Live in Reality. Last year, I attended a talk in Victoria by the famous writer Salman Rushdie. It's funny because I haven't actually read any of his novels, <laughs> but, um, but his most recent novel, The Golden House, bears some resemblance to the story of Donald Trump, although it was actually conceived before Trump was elected, and don't worry, I'm not getting into politics. Um, but Salman Rushdie said that he had decided to write this novel because sometimes truth is better conveyed through fiction, and I've kind of been chewing on that since I heard it. Uh, and it, it may seem like a strange choice in a culture that has recently been deemed post-truth. Have you guys heard that? So a study from MIT found that fake news stories are 70% or 70 more likely to be retru ret retweeted on Twitter than actual stories, factual stories. And yes, I did fact check that <laughs> study. In this climate of suspicion and fabrication, wouldn't we want the maximum amount of verifiable fact rather than being sidetracked by what's made up? Don't we already have enough stories of Sharknados in South Carolina? because that was a story that I circulated <laughs> that turned out not to be true <laughs> earlier this year. Um, well, I've actually been surprised and somewhat encouraged by the backlash against fake news, and I think it shows that relativism can really only go so far. But I wonder if this reaction to fake news is only about facts. I wonder if it actually represents a deeper line, a lament for the loss of greater truth, not just journalistic news. So I want to argue tonight that, as Salman Rushdie proposes, we humans need fiction to understand the truth that's common to us all. I have a deep love for fiction. I grew up with both of my parents reading aloud to us, six kids, from Winnie the Pooh to Romeo and Juliet. 
My parents revealed these favorite books as if they were great treasures. My dad told us ongoing bedtime stories of worlds accessed through our dresser drawers. Though we never went on expensive vacations, through stories we were invited again and again into distant lands. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> when I was older, I got caught up in many different tales. Not caught up, caught up. Um, <laughs> maybe. Particularly The Lord of the Rings. And I used to make up my own stories and maps and languages, which were mostly a really embarrassing ripoff of Tolkien. <laughs> I read to my younger siblings, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the Search for Delicious. In university, I studied creative writing and English literature. And even though, now, though, I always have a lot of books to read for Libri, nonfiction books, I usually have at least three novels on the go. Though, as we'll discuss, Jesus used stories over and over again to convey truth, many Christians remain suspicious of fiction. I once had a friend at Labrie argue with the whole table that we have no reason to write fiction when nonfiction would do just as well. There was a lot of angry response. <laughs> There's a concern that because it isn't true, that is factual, people might be sidetracked from other more important matters. They may, may use fiction as a means of escape, especially if it's fantasy. Some Christian fiction may be allowed if it's a retelling of a biblical story, an allegory of the gospel, or set in an Amish community. <laughs> all three can be done well, but all too often they become a means of propaganda rather than an invitation into wrestling with truth. <coughs> well, whether or not it's approved of, people just keep telling stories. They've done it forever, and I'm sure that they always will. So why do we have this compulsion for narrative? Is it just entertainment, or does it meet a deeper need? I want to talk tonight about why we need fiction to get at the truth. And I'm going to frame this lecture in a classic Libri lecture um, structure, which is three parts, creation, fall, and redemption. And these sections are a narrative in themselves. It's the human story, which is ultimately God's story. In creation, I'll talk about how writers and readers engage in the making of a world, how fiction can give us new eyes to see, and how fiction can help us find our own place in a greater story. In fall, I'll discuss how fiction helps us understand human nature in general, and our individual experience in particular, as well as creating empathy for those who are different from us. And in redemption, I'll show how fiction awakens us to transcendent joy and helps us receive grace. And finally, I'll talk about how Jesus used stories to open his audience to the truth of God's kingdom. And of course, I'll reference The Lord of the Rings a lot and <laughs> quote C.S. Lewis a ton. So let's start with creation. Once upon a time, in the beginning, God created. Cockatoos and cedar trees, amoebas and toads, stalactites and human hearts. A peaceable kingdom where all could flourish and grow. To create, we have to imagine something that doesn't exist and bring it into being. We can choose what to create, a ring of destructive power or a humble hobbit garden. Mm -hmm. This gift of creativity is a result of free will given to us by God. We create because we were created. We are, in the words of Tolkien, sub-creators. We can't create from nothing as God did, but we can take what we've already been given, paint, marble, music, words, and use it to make something new. To create is to believe that something we can't see is able to exist. Whether we write or we read, we engage in the act of creation. 
the writer and the reader enter into a contract of imagination. The writer gives enough details to get the ball rolling, and the reader supplies the rest. In this way, reading a story is different from watching a movie. Movies are good, but they're different. You become an active participant in the creation, and the book becomes partly your own property, your own story, which is filled in with what's particular to how you see and imagine the world. So when a movie adaptation of a well-loved book comes out, fans of the book argue about how well it portrays their own version of scenes and characters. It can feel like a violation to watch a movie adaptation and have your own co-created images replaced with those of a director. The film might be a moving piece of art in its own right, but it has to settle in just one version of what's heard and seen. On his, in his book on moral fiction, John Gardner writes, to understand a complex work of art, one must be something of an artist oneself. A writer who respects her readers extends them an invitation to create the story together. The reader who accepts becomes an artist too. And when the writer gives us enough information to make a place or person feel real, but not so much that we don't have to imagine anymore, we step into a world, be it Treasure Island or the fairy forest of a Midsummer's Night's Dream. And one of the things I love most in fiction is a world that feels like it really exists. <clears throat> Middle Earth is one of those places for me. Surprise, surprise. It has languages and history and places that feel old feel as if they existed long before I showed up to read about them. Some stories take place within real settings. The small southern town of Maycomb in which To Kill a Mockingbird is set is fictional, but it's based on a real place. So listen to how Harper Lee describes Maycomb near the beginning of the novel. Maycomb was an old town, but it was a tired old town when I first knew it. In rainy weather, the streets turned to red slop. Grass grew on the sidewalks. The courthouse sagged into the square. Somehow it was hotter then. A black dog suffered on a summer's day. Bony mules hitched to hoover carts flicked flies in the sweltering shade of the live oaks in the square. Men's stiff collars wilted by nine in the morning. Ladies bathed before noon after their three o'clock naps and by nightfall were like soft tea cakes with frostings of sweat and sweet talcum. I love that description. <laughs> I think we're given so much in one short paragraph to just immerse us in this world of a small southern town in the Depression era. So Maycomb was my feeling of the South long before I ever went there. <laughs> and just hearing the statistics about the average southern town, uh, how much talcum powder ladies wear, it wouldn't have done anything to really convey what it feels like to be there. And fiction engages our imagination in such a deep way that we might look up from a book surprised to still see the ordinary world around us. And that happens to me. Some of my favorite books I reread just for the experience of being in that place again, whether it's the wood between the worlds or the drafty corridors of I Capture the Castle. Fiction opens us up to a realm of places we've never been. And you, you can save a lot on air fire, too. <laughs> <coughs> Not only does fiction bring us into entirely different worlds from our own, it can also illuminate the worlds that we already inhabit. One of my writing instructors when I was at UVic, Carla Funk, told us that a poet's job is to re rehabilitate old cliches. I really like that, and I think it's true of the fiction writer as well. 
we can become so inured to the world around us that we no longer take notice. A good writer of fiction helps us wake up. Pastor and Pulitzer-nominated novelist Frederick Buechner says of characters who find a magical world. Oh, I guess I didn't put that one down. Never mind, don't pay attention to that. <laughs> it might be more accurate to say that the world of the fairy tale found them and found them in the midst of their everyday lives, in the everyday world. You enter the extraordinary by way of the ordinary. Something you have seen a thousand times, you suddenly see as if for the first time, like the looking glass over the mantle or the curtains of the bed. C.S. Lewis writes, imagination is often regarded as a sense of the impossible, but is also a grasp of the possible, the unseen, the hoped for. Before one can become a Christian, one must posit that God may exist. When we enter into these imaginary worlds, we become believers in something more than the limits of our own head. We open ourselves to other voices, other lands. Not just our reason is engaged, but our imagination. In the practice of both writing and reading, we learn to listen and attend to what's being given to us. And it may be that in this opening, this appetite for wonder, we can hear something beyond even what the writer is trying to say. Humans can't help telling stories. It's natural as breathing. We're myth makers in every culture and tongue. It's how we figure out our lives and help to make them bearable. It's where each culture keeps the things it loves and values most. If we have language, we start saying, once upon a time, and the children gather with glowing eyes, and the adults turn from the kitchen sink and start listening too. Just before he became a Christian, Lewis had a long conversation with his friend Tolkien. Lewis claimed that myths are ultimately lies breathed through silver. So Tolkien wrote him a poem in response called Mythopoeia, and that's the slide there. Dear sir, although now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet he is not dethroned and keeps the rags of lordship he once owned. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues, and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build gods in their houses out of dark and light, and sowed the seed of dragons. Twas our right, used or misused. That right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. So Tolkien is saying that our creation of imaginary worlds is a reflection of God's own creative power. Even if it's misused, creativity is still an indicator of the rags of lordship we once owned. The original light of God is refracted through the stories we create, and it can still illuminate truth. These old rhythms of story echo and ripple in us, like stones dropped to test for water in a well. The Christian claim is that there was a good world, a created world, set in order and sustained by God. In The Magician's Nephew by Lewis, Uncle Andrew creates magic rings that try to get back to the otherworldly soil they're made from. 
in the same way our returning to story again and again is a sign that we know our lives are more than just chance, that there's an original world we came from, that things are not as they once were, and not as they someday will be. Stories ring in our bones because we are part of a story, a story that stretches back to the beginning of time and goes ever on and on. So now on to the fall, the second section. John Gardner writes, the artist's fundamental sense as he looks at life is of glory obstructed, a glimpsed wholeness shattered. So to recognize that there's glory obstructed and wholeness shattered is to believe that glory and wholeness exist. But it also asserts that something against glory and wholeness has entered the good world and crept through its caverns and spread through the sap in the trees. And this is what Christians call the fall. Brokenness entering into the world through the sin of Adam and Eve. In a literary world that feels fully real, <coughs> that feels true, we find that, like our world, all is not as it should be. A story is driven by conflict. Any writer knows that. Man against man, man against nature, man against himself, or even man against God. Will Macbeth become king instead of Duncan? Did Anne really lose Marilla's amethyst brooch? Will Shere Khan kill Mowgli? Will Zuckerman turn Wilbur into bacon? The writer has to convince us that the outcome of the conflict matters. In this, the writer asserts that something is desirable, or at the very least interesting, and something else is not. Not everything is sameness. Not everything is relative. Not everything can coexist. Conflict is part of life. Conflict feels true to us because as humans we feel its thread sewn through our own hearts. Through conflict, stories, even if they're written about non-human characters, reveal something to us about human character. The great writers all show us something of the human condition. Jane Austen, Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, they all plumb both the beauty and depravity of the human heart. One of Clark's favorite writers, Flannery O'Connor, she wrote about the South, used her stories to portray what she called violent grace. Though she was a devout Catholic, she didn't write nice Christian stories. Her tales are full of deformed people, self-righteous church ladies, crooked salesmen, racists, serial killers, and cold intellectuals. O'Connor uses violent and sometimes graphic moments where characters come face to face with true evil and by being shocked out of their spiritual numbness are offered grace. Go one over. Yeah. So O'Connor says, the novelist doesn't write about people in a vacuum. He writes about people in a world where something is obviously lacking, where there is the general mystery of incompleteness and the particular tragedy of our own times to be demonstrated. And the novelist tries to give you, within the form of the book, a total experience of human nature at any time. For this reason, the greatest dramas naturally involve the salvation or the loss of the soul. Where there is no belief in the soul, there is very little drama. Where there's no belief in the soul, there's very little drama. Interesting. You can go back to the other one. So in my favorite story of O'Connor's, the main character who has a wooden leg has changed her name from Joy to Holga, simply because Holga sounds ugly. 
Helga has her PhD in philosophy and thinks that she can see through everything. And when I read about Helga, I laugh at this description. It's kind of old school hipster. <laughs> so here she went about all day in a six-year-old skirt and yellow sweatshirt with a cowboy and a horse embossed on it. She thought this was funny. Mrs. Hopewell, her mother, thought it was idiotic and showed simply that she was still a child. All day, Joy sat on her neck in a deep chair reading. Sometimes she went for walks, but she didn't like dogs or cats or birds or flowers or nature or nice young men. She looked at nice young men as if she could smell their stupidity. <laughs> well, Holga meets a nice young man who sells Bibles door to door, and she goes on a walk with him, and she intends to seduce him and teach him the ways of the world. Instead, she finds herself swayed by his innocence, and in a moment of vulnerability, lets him take off her wooden leg. He opens his Bible to reveal booze, a condom, and a deck of dirty playing cards. When she expresses shock, he makes off with her leg, saying, you ain't so smart. I've been believing in nothing ever since I was born. Holga is left staring, with her estimation of herself shattered. This is a scales dropping from eyes moment. We never see what happens to her afterward, but we can see the chance that she is offered to face the truth, the salvation or the loss of her soul. And some of O'Connor's stories end just at that moment where the scales drop from the eyes, some go a little farther, but in all of them, a person comes face to face with who they really are. I laugh at Helga's pretension, but then I grimace because in her cynicism and pride, I see myself. This is the effect of many O'Connor's stories have. They reveal the overall human condition while making the reader feel personally seen. They have a peculiar ability to bring moral conviction. Not only can fiction help us understand human character in general, it can also help us understand ourselves. Ma Madeline Langle, author of A Wrinkle in Time, who's read that book, a lot of people here, yeah. um, she says that good art helps us to feel named. When we find a character or situation we relate to, we come to a deeper understanding of ourselves. Langle writes, to name is to love, to be named is to love. So in a very true sense, the great works which help us to be more named and also love us and help us to love. I'm in a book club, monthly book club, with a couple of friends. And recently at one of these meetings, we were discussing a novel that had been influential for a certain minority group in giving voice to their story. My friend Carla asked us if we'd ever read a book that seemed to tell our story, or if we were still waiting for it to be written. It was a really interesting conversation to have about times where we felt named in literature and what we were still waiting to be named in. This ability for a book written by a complete stranger to tell the reader's own story is one of the best reasons for reading, in my opinion. It can help us feel less alone to know someone else is able to understand our own struggles and joys. And it can give us language to explain, even to ourselves, what's going on in our heart. Simon Lesser writes, we read primarily to discover ourselves. Above all, perhaps, to discover what St. Augustine refers to as the dark corners of the heart. I'll talk more about that quote later. But how much more powerful it is to show us temptation and corruption through a story than to simply tell us to avoid it. When I recently reread Lord of the Rings, I was surprised to find that the character I related to the most was Gollum. 
Gollum, a sort of hobbit, struggles throughout the book with his addiction to the Ring of Power. Each major character in the trilogy has his or own conflict. For Gollum, it's whether he'll succumb to the temptation to throttle Frodo and steal the ring, or whether he'll become Smeagol, return to sanity and redeemed. Twisted as Gollum may be, to me he felt like the most human character in the book. In a season of internal conflict, I could understand Gollum in a way that I never had before. And through understanding him, I came to understand more about my own struggle. And now Gollum is my precious. <laughs> <coughs> we see the naming power of fiction at work in the Bible when Nathan confronts King David about committing adultery with Bathsheba. Rather than begin by accusing David, Nathan involves David's heart by telling him a story. Once upon a time, there was a man who had a beloved lamb. The lamb was like his own child, and he snuggled with it at night and let it eat out of his hand. The next-door neighbor was a commercial sheep farmer and had a slaughterhouse in the next state. His freezer was full of ground lamb and styrofoam and plastic wrap. Mm -hmm. But when an important business colleague showed up, the neighbor wanted fresh meat. So he tiptoed into his neighbor's backyard one afternoon and kidnapped the beloved lamb for dinner that night. Well, King David is outraged at this injustice, and he pronounces the neighbor deserving of death because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan looks him in the eyes and says four short words, you are the man. David crumbles with remorse, realizing the terrible truth he had hardened himself to. Had Nathan started out simply by laying out the facts, David might have reacted with immediate anger and self-defense. But because he captured David's moral imagination, he caused David to feel named, his heart to be laid bare. Fiction's power to name was important in my dad's conversion to Christianity as well. In his 20s, he read Ernest Buckler's Canadian classic, The Mountain and the Valley. The protagonist, David, is an intensely introspective boy, caught up in his own mind. My dad saw his own inwardness reflected in David's character and he knew and feared this was what he might become. It was this re realization of who he was that helped spur him towards finding change in Christ. Fiction can help us feel seen and understood through its naming, as well as helping us understand ourselves. But it can also help us understand those who are very different from us. Literary fiction, which unlike popular fiction, focuses more on characters' internal lives, has actually been shown to improve people's capacity for, for empathy. Pretty cool. One of my favorite novels is Middlemarch by George Eliot. Has anyone read that? It's really long, it takes time to get through it. Um, there's a lot of different characters. It's a story, I think, of the deceitfulness of the human heart. The characters share some things in common, being human, but they also have unique fears and motivations. Dorothea, the main character, wants to do something good for humanity. Kazaban wants to create an intellectual masterpiece. Fred wants to live an easygoing life. In keeping with their personalities and desires, these and other characters make choices that get them stuck in places they never would have expected. The novel is ultimately redemptive, but it's not tidy. It's really helped me to understand that other people don't necessarily have the same struggles that I do. While some, like Nilatus Lies, the moody romantic character, um, are very much like me. Middlemarch helps me to feel named, but it also gives me empathy for other people. 
I'm really amazed that Elliot was able to write sympathetically of so many different kinds of people. That really takes a lot of skill. John Gardner explains that the fiction writer goes through a process of trying to decide what a character would actually believably do in a certain cir circumstance. In considering the options, the writer climbs inside the character's head and tries to understand a different person. And then we read the character's actions without seeing all the potential choices that the author considered. But the author uses suspense to help a reader go through a similar process, as the reader wonders what will happen. What choices will the character make? Will Harry Potter join the Slytherin House for Power or follow his friends to Gryffindor? Will Lizzie Bennet admit that she'd misjudge Mr. Darcy or will she remain proud? Will Atticus Finch cave in to social intimidation and give up defending an innocent black man? As we go through each character's struggle, we gain empathy for the choices they face. When we see what's best in these characters, we feel inspired to imitate them. <laughs> Last summer, I hiked the Wanafuka Trail, which is a five-day trek along the west coast of the island, and the second to last day was the hardest. Um, there were uh, steep ascents up and down over 12 creeks, and there were angry wasps that built nests all over the trail <laughs> that constantly were stinging us. Um, and on the last ascent, though I didn't know it was the last, I was just barely hanging on. Uh, and then I told myself, um, about those two little hobbits in mortar. I remember them. <laughs> Don't say you can't do it, I told myself. If Frodo and Sam could get to the top of Mount Doom, you can get to the top of this hill. It's kind of a silly example, but it worked. I got up the hill, and then I cast my backpack into the fires of Mount Doom. <laughs> well, fiction doesn't just tell us to be good or courageous. It inspires us by showing a picture of what goodness and courage look like. We live many others' lives and learn by their experiences. To quote Lewis again, in reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. Like a night sky in the Greek poem, I see with a myriad eyes, but it is still I who see. Here, as in worship, in love, in moral action, and in knowing, I transcend myself and am never more myself than when I do. So moving on to the third part of truth that fiction helps us understand. This is redemption. If fiction shows us the reality of conflict inside and outside the human, it also shows us the longing for goodness restored. We've been told that the world around us is a product of chance and that our lives are meaningless. But when we enter the world of story, we imagine that maybe instead we have a purpose to defeat the Hydra the White Witch, Lord Voldemort, well, he, who must not be named, it's hard to say his name, <laughs> or Sauron, and return beauty and order to the land. So back to the quote I mentioned earlier from Simon Lesser, we read primarily to discover ourselves, and above all, perhaps to discover what St. Augustine refers to as the dark corners of the heart. This is one of the reasons we read, but I believe the primary reason we read to, or should at least read, is to find hope and meaning in life something that makes sense of the dark corners of the heart and offers redemption. It's really hard to make goodness attractive and believable in writing. Often the dark characters end up being more interesting, which is a criticism that was made of Milton's character of Satan in Paradise Lost. He's more interesting than God. <laughs> and part of us just resists believing in goodness because it seems so hard to find. 
but as interested as we may be in mucking around in the basement, I believe most of us ultimately want to find rumors of light, of goodness that's compelling, not sentimental or bland, goodness that we desire. We spoke earlier of C.S. Lewis's literary friendship with Tolkien. Lewis's autobiography of his early years, Surprised by Joy, is one of the most compelling accounts of someone who encountered Christian truth through stories. He writes of his early experience reading Beatrix Potter's Little Tale Squirrel Nutkin. Probably lots of you grew up with that. It troubled me with what I can only describe as the idea of autumn. It sounds fantastic to say that one can be enamored of a season, but that is something like what happened. And as before, the experience was one of intense desire. As he grew up, Lewis had occasional pangs of this deep longing in encountering various music and literature, such as Wagner's operas and Old Norse mythology. In his allegorical novel, Pilgrim's Regress, Lewis writes again of this experience of, I think I have this, that inamable something, desire for which pierces us like a rapier at the smell of a bonfire, the sound of wild ducks flying overhead, the title of The Well at the World's End, the opening lines of Kubla Khan, the morning cobwebs in late summer, or the noise of falling waves. One such moment in fiction that has always stuck with me is from The Wind in the Willows. I'm going to read a section two. It's a bit long, but I think it's worth it because I think it conveys really well what C.S. Lewis is speaking of. And in this chapter, Ratty and Mole, who are two of the main characters, are rowing on the river near dawn and they're looking for a lost otter child. So get comfortable <laughs> while I read. <coughs> Then a change began slowly to declare itself. The horizon became clearer. Field and tree came more into sight, and somehow with a different look. The mystery began to drop away from them. A bird piped suddenly and was still, and a light breeze sprang up and set the reeds and bulrushes rustling. Rat, who was in the stern of the boat, while Mole scald, sat up suddenly and listened with a passionate intenseness. Mole, who with gentle strokes was just keeping the boat moving while he scanned the banks with care, looked at him with curiosity. It's gone, sighed the rat, sinking back into his seat again. So beautiful and strange and new. Since it was to end so soon, I almost wish I had never heard it. For it has roused a longing in me that is pain and nothing seems worthwhile but just to hear that sound once more and go on listening to it forever. No, there it is again, he cried, alert once more. Entranced, he was silent for a long space, spellbound. Now it passes on and I begin to lose it, he said presently. Oh, Mole, the beauty of it, the merry bubble and joy, the thin, clear, happy call of the distant piping. Such music I never dreamed of, and the call in it is stronger even than the music is sweet. Row on, Mole, row, for the music and the call must be for us. The Mole, greatly wondering, obeyed. I hear nothing myself, he said, but the wind playing in the reeds and the rushes and the osiers. The rat never answered. 
if indeed he heard. Wrapped, transported, trembling, he was possessed in all his senses by this new divine thing that caught up his helpless soul and swung and dandled it, a powerless but happy infant in a strong sustaining grasp. In silence, Mole rode steadily, and soon they came to a point where the river divided, a long backwater branching off to one side. With a slight movement of his head, Rat, who had long dropped the rudder lines, directed the rower to take the backwater. The creeping tide of light gained and gained, and now they could see the color of the flowers that gemmed the water's edge. Clearer and nearer still, cried the Rat joyously. Now you must surely hear it. Ah, at last! I see you do. Breathless and transfixed, the mole stopped rowing as the liquid run of that glad piping broke on him like a wave, caught him up and possessed him utterly. He saw the tears on his comrade's cheeks and bowed his head and understood. For a space they hung there, brushed by the purple loose stripe that fringed the bank. Then the clear, imperious summons that marched hand in hand with the intoxicating melody imposed its will on Mole, and mechanically he bent to his oars again. And the light grew steadily stronger, but no birds sang as they were wont to do at the approach of dawn. And but for the heavenly music, all was marvelously still. On either side of them, as they glided onwards, the rich meadow grass seemed that morning of a freshness and a greenness unsurpassable. Never had they noticed the roses so vivid, the willow herb so riotous, the meadow sweet so odorous and pervading. Then the murmur of the approaching weir began to hold the air, and they felt a consciousness that they were nearing the end, whatever it might be, that surely awaited their expedition. A wide half-circle of foam and glinting lights and shining shoulders of green water, the great weir closed the backwater from bank to bank troubled all the quiet surface with twirling eddies and floating foam streaks, and deadened all other sounds with its solemn and soothing rumble. In midmost of the stream, embraced in the weir's shimmering arm spread, a small island lay anchored, fringed close with willow and silver birch and alder. Reserved, shy, but full of significance, it hid whatever it might hold behind a veil, keeping it till the hour should come, and with the hour, those who were called and chosen. Slowly, but with no doubt or hesitation whatever, and in something of a solemn expectancy, the two animals passed through the broken, tumultuous water and moored their boat at the flowery margin of the island. In silence they landed and pushed through the blossom and the scented herbage and undergrowth that led up to the level ground till they stood on a little lawn of a marvelous green, set round with nature's own orchard trees, crabapple, wild cherry, and sloe. This is the place of my song dream, the place the music played to me, whispered the rat, as if in a trance. Here in this holy place, here if anywhere, surely we shall find him. Then suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy, but it was an awe that smote and held him, and without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look for his friend, 
and saw him at his side cowed, stricken, and trembling violently. And still there was utter silence in the populous bird-haunted branches around them, and still the light grew and grew. Perhaps he would never have dared to raise his eyes, but that, though the piping was now hushed, the call and the summons seemed still dominant and imperious. He might not refuse, were death himself waiting to strike him instantly, once he had looked with mortal eye on things rightly kept hidden. Trembling he obeyed, and raised his humble head. And then, in that utter, utter clearness of the imminent dawn, while nature, flushed with fullness of incredible color, seemed to hold her breath for the event, he looked in the very eyes of the friend and helper, saw the backward sweep of the curved horns gleaming in the growing daylight, saw the stern hooked nose between the kindly eyes that were looking down on them humorously, while the bearded mouth broke into a half smile at the corners, saw the rippling muscles on the arm that lay across the broad chest, the long supple hand still holding the panpipes, only just fallen away from the parted lips saw the splendid curves of the shaggy limbs disposed in majestic ease on the sward, saw, lost of all, nestling between his very hooves, sleeping soundly in entire peace and contentment, the little round, podgy, childish form of the baby otter. All this he saw for one moment, breathless and intense, vivid on the morning sky, and still as he looked he lived, and still as he lived he wondered. Rat. He found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with an unutterable love. Afraid? Of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh, Mole, I am afraid. Then the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. Sudden and magnificent, the sun's broad golden disk showed itself over the horizon facing them and the first rays shooting across the level water me meadows took the animals full in the eyes and dazzled them. When they were able to look once more, the vision had vanished, and the air was full of the carol of birds that hailed the dawn. Thanks for listening. One more chapter. <laughs> <laughs> if Andrew wants to come over and read two, you know, yeah. bedtime story. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> um, so Rat says of Pan's piping, it has roused a longing in me that is pain, and nothing seems worthwhile but just to hear that sound once more and go on listening to it forever. And that seems like the perfect description of what C.S. Lewis and Tolkien mean by joy. Even the title of this chapter is The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, and that conveys to me the experience of joy. I really like The Wind in the Willows in general, but this chapter feels very different from the rest of the book which is mostly boisterous and lighthearted. This chapter strikes me with a longing for transcendence. I know that Pan isn't real, so I'm not tempted to worship him, but what I want is what this chapter is getting at, the music and the call that must be for me. Madeline Lingle addresses just this. We are hurt, we are lonely, and we turn to music or words and as compensation beyond all price, we are given glimpses of the world on the other side of time and space. We all have glimpses of glory as children, and as we grow up, we forget them or are taught to think we made them up. 
they couldn't possibly have been real, because to most of us who are grown up, reality is like radium and can be born only in very small quantities. But we are meant to be real and to see and to recognize the real. We are all more than we know, and that wondrous reality, that wholeness, holiness, is there for all of us, not the qualified only. In us, we all bear the original soil of the world we came from. We catch glimpses of that glory and are struck with both a fullness and an insatiable longing. We hear the panpipes and we have to get to them however we can. The German word for this is Zenzucht. It's the bittersweet pang of desire at something beautiful beyond our grasp and comprehension. Buechner describes it as that catch of the breath, that beat and lifting of the heart, near to or even accompanied by tears, which I believe is the deepest intuition of truth that we have. And this is truth that goes beyond proposition, straight to the heart of human experience. Even just to try and explain it feels like somehow cheapening its depth, which is beyond words. This is our longing for transcendence, for something outside of the four walls of our own head. It's the recognition of our need for the divine. What Augustine described when he said, Thou hast promised man that he should delight to praise thee, for thou hast made us for thyself, and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in thee. When we find these moments in literature, something of the delight of praise enters in. We take joy in what we can never possess or understand, but what rather encompasses us. We could write essays on it and conduct scientific studies, but this would never touch it like encountering it in a story as if for the first time. I recently asked one of my favorite former English profs of what she'd felt she'd gained from reading fiction. This woman isn't a Christian. She said that reading fantasy in particular has given her the longing for transcendence. That's the word she used. Tolkien says that fairy tales are especially well suited to convey this experience of profound aching joy. He writes, the peculiar quality of joy in successful fantasy can thus be explained as a sudden glimpse of the underlying reality or truth. This glimpse, he says, is evangelium, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. Lewis and Tolkien shared this experience of joy in common. After Lewis talked with Tolkien about these glimpses of truth, found in new and ancient stories from all over the world, he became convinced that these all pointed to the story of Jesus Christ. And thus he entered the world of true truth. We often think of fantasy as an escape, the same as fantasizing. But its ability to touch that part of us that lies beyond scientific proofs may actually allow us to engage with truth at the deepest level. Tolkien asked Lewis, what class of men would you expect to be most preoccupied with and hostile to the idea of escape? Does anyone know? The answer was jailers. Escape is appropriate when what we're escaping from is a world dulled to God's transcendent truth. This isn't escape from reality, but escape into reality, where your own backyard is suddenly illuminated with otherworldly other, other light. Nowhere is the truth of story more clear than in the Bible. The Bible is the great story of creation, fall, and redemption. 
It's no accident that most of the Bible is narrative accounts, not theological treatises. Story is suited to convey the deepest truths. And this isn't limited to the historical accounts of the Israelites or the Gospels. Fiction is found in the very mouth of our Lord. Once upon a time, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. One writer said, Jesus didn't come as a theologian. He came as God telling stories. God telling stories, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Jesus didn't tell stories about things that had really happened. He made up tales, creating narrative by the same power that created us. He used simple language and images his listeners were familiar with. A lost sheep, a loaf of bread, a field of wheat, a wedding feast, a golden coin. He held crowds spellbound. Why do this? Why tell stories instead of get compli into complicated rhetorical debates with the readers of the day? In Mark, Jesus explains his use of stories. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has grown callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. The Jewish leaders kept asking Jesus questions to try and trick him. They wanted the facts, but not so that they could hear and be transformed. Rather than offer complicated systematic theology to explain his kingdom, Jesus uses metaphor, symbol, and narrative. Those who want to hear the truth will be curious and ask the right questions. Those who want a reason to reject Jesus, to call out fake news about God's arrival on earth, will be baffled and frustrated by a tale they can't contradict. Oh, no. Okay, I don't have it down. Go to back. <laughs> um, <coughs> what is the kingdom of God, Buechner writes? Jesus does not speak of a reorganization of society as a political possibility or of the doctrine of salvation as a doctrine. He speaks of what it is like to find a diamond ring that you thought you'd lost forever. He speaks of what it is like to win the Irish sweepstakes. He suggests rather than spells out he evokes rather than explains. He catches by surprise. The stories Jesus told still echo on. We still ponder their meaning. Jesus never considered someone too old to hear a story, too old for truth by fiction. Jesus invites us to open our ears and eyes to a world beyond our own imaginings. These parables are small gems set in the crown of the greatest story, the one that gives room to all our longings for transcendence and joy. It's a story of the dark corners of the heart, yes, but it's also a story of the comedy of impossible grace. Tolkien used the word eucatastrophe to describe the sudden happy turn in a fairy tale. The happy ending, the eucatastrophe, can seem too tidy if it isn't done well. My favorite novels tend to have endings that are a bit ragged, a mix of resolution and ambiguity. 
and I'm sure you want to hear about the Lord, the Lord of the Rings again. <laughs> um, <laughs> the books differ in some important ways from the movies. And one is that when the hobbits return home from their adventures, they find that the Shire has changed. When they get home in the movies, it's all exactly the same kind of dream world like England, um, if England is a dream world. But <laughs> in the, the books, it's not so. Um, the traitorous wizard Soroman, though he's been diminished, has showed up and he's set up to destroy the beautiful countryside in revenge for his downfall. Old trees and buildings have been torn up to make way for ugly new ones. No place has been unaffected by evil. Even after the Shire has been set to rights, we learn that because of the effects of Frodo's encounters with dark powers, he isn't able to stay in Middle-earth and grow old with his friends. So Frodo says goodbye and sails away with the elves. We haven't hinted that his dearest friend Sam may one day join him, but we don't know if he will. That everything isn't tied up with a bow makes me feel the characters are still living on after I close the book. And it's true to my own experience of life, where questions still remain. As we age, we're able to handle more complexity in our fiction the way we hopefully are able to handle more complexity in our own lives. But even children can be introduced to bittersweet books. Where the Red Fern Grows, which deals with a dog's death, or A Bridge to Terabithia, which deals with a girl's death, are two books that are emotionally complex, but not without hope. The Little Prince is a fantasy story that contains deep themes of sacrifice, friendship, and imagination, but it ends with a moving death. I found myself crying at all these books, but not with despair. Despairing, hopeless books never make me cry, because they don't feel true. I cry when I see that in the keen sadness there is also a hidden beauty, beauty for ashes and joy for tears. Often in reading fiction we can be brought to face our own questions about all that's unresolved. Traveling with a fictional character as they lose someone or something beloved can help us process grief. Life is untidy. We are capable of handling untidiness in our fiction too. Ultimately, the world of story, story that gets at truth, is about, as Buechner says, the laughter of things beyond the tears of things. This is my last Tolkien quote. Can you bring it up? <laughs> <laughs> the Gospels contain a fairy story, or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. But the story has entered history in the primary world. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history, the resurrection is a eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find is true. Stories contain conflict and darkness because our lives do too. But in the flashes of joy we find in fiction, we're consoled by the reminder that one day our joy will be made complete when the true king returns. Until then, we find our stories mixtures of dark and light, sadness and joy. But for the Christian, <coughs> the ache of loss is always bound to the hope that good will one day be restored when we reach home at last. But the whole point of the fairy tale of the gospel is, <coughs> Buchner writes, of course, that he is the king in spite of everything. That is the gospel this meeting of darkness and light and the final victory of light. That is the fairy tale of the gospel with, of course, the one crucial difference from all other fairy tales, which is that the claim made for it is that it is true. That it not only happened once upon a time, 
but has kept on happening ever since and is happening still. To close, I'm going to read the liturgy of Lament Upon the Finishing of a Beloved Book. (laughs) (coughs) I am stirred and saddened, O Lord, in coming to this tale's end. To bid farewell and return now for my sojourn in that storied place where longings for something more than the life I lead were wakened. It is in the receding glow of that small bright sorrow that I now linger. Let it do its work in me, inviting me to dig beneath these fresh stirred longings, to see what their roots are not at last, a longing for the places depicted in these pages, but are in truth profound and holy wounds yearnings for a lost garden and a more perfect city where injustice, where justice and righteousness are restored and harms are healed and losses redeemed and love proved true and earth and heaven reconciled. What I feel is, at its heart, a homesick hope for a place of unbroken communion with my creator and with his people and with all of his creation. What I most desire is to open my eyes and find that, for the first time in my life, I am home and breathing the wild winds of my native land. So of course my heart aches each time I receive these beautiful, distant rumors of that far country. Of course I do not want such a story to end, for it is wedged open for me away like a window through which I have glimpsed a vision of things more as they will one day be than as they are now in these hard and sorrowing lands of our exile. Thank you, O my God, for loving me enough that you would rouse my deepest desires again through story, appointing these longings as true signposts planted in a war-torn and cratered landscape reminding me that all of history is leading at last to a king and a kingdom and pointing me ever onward toward his righteous and eternal city. May I return now from the world of this book to the daily details of my own life with truer vision and fiercer hope, trailing with me remnants of that coming glory I have glimpsed again in story. Amen. So we can have some discussion if you have any comments. And I would really love to hear if anyone has books that have been really meaningful to them and um, had these glimpses of truth to them. That um, part in the the first section, creation, there were a couple things you said that just jumped out at me, like um, uh, that reminded me of uh, the definition of faith, that uh, faith is the um, assurance of things hoped for but not seen, and it's mm-hmm. sort of like, well, that's the artist or the writer mm-hmm. has this assurance of this realm, mm-hmm. and they step out in mm-hmm. faith. It was sort of like, well, wow, that's kind of a spiritual 
activity then, mm. isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I really like you pointing to that scripture. Well, yeah. You did, because it just reached in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hadn't even thought of that, but that's totally yeah. true. And yeah. also that uh, God calls things as that are not as though they are. Mm. And so we're reaching from the faith, and he's He's doing the same thing, but from up, you know, yeah. in the opposite direction. Yeah, meeting us. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And I think often you see that kind of writers write something that they don't even know <laughs> that they've written in a sense. And I think there is something mysterious going on often there. Yeah. I kind of like that though. That makes me think how God names us. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, the writer's naming things and bringing things into being. But then it's not just that he creates us, but he names mm-hmm. us. Yeah, there's a... I mean, I wanted to put so many quotes in here, I had to cut out like <laughs> two-thirds of them, but um, another one by Beaconer is talking about how um, fairy in fairy tales, it's kind of a story where at the end, all the, the characters are transformed to their true nature. Mm-hmm. So if they're, if they're ugly at heart, then you see their true ugliness revealed. If they're beautiful, you see that they really are a princess mm-hmm. or a queen. And, uh, and he says it reminds him of um, in Revelations when the, mm-hmm. the angel gives the, the believers who persevered um, a white stone with a name written on it that it, only they know. And <laughs> that, that's, that is that um, revelation of who we really are. And I think that, <laughs> I always love thinking about that image, and I think that's, that's like the name that only God knows who we are, um, that he has given us since the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cool. Has anyone read a story that has helped them to feel named mm-hmm. in some way? Or even watched a story. (laughs) What do you mean by named? Does it mean that, wow, this is the life that I've wanted, or (coughs) this is what my life is? Or is it more a matter of a book that just strikes you as something you would love to do or be involved with? I mean, I think it could be either way, but I think usually um, the sense like, this shows who I am, kind of. Whether it's like your desire, or mm-hmm. which could be the the latter one, or um, conviction of like, ooh, <laughs> this is who I am, or mm-hmm. oh yeah, this gives me language to sort of explain to other people, or to feel like not so alone or whatever. Yeah, so I think it could be both. Okay, I've certainly read stories that I go, wow, that just swept me away. I would love to actually live that. Mm-hmm. But I've never had one that mm. explained me. I've mm. never felt that. What's one that swept you away? Can you think of one? I honestly don't know the title. <laughs> I know it's a Stephen King novel, but it's not his typical stuff. It was um, time travel. Mm. And they went through this thing, and the guy <coughs> went back to the 1940s or something, and he lived back there mm. with knowledge of today. And enjoyed all of the time he was there uh, I think because life was simpler and and he appreciated it because he lived here whereas we can I was talking to my dad last night he's 88 and he was talking about traffic and he said I lived in a really beautiful time you could just drive somewhere there's never traffic and he said it was just really nice you could go for drives he loves to go for drives and it came from that so enjoying another time mm-hmm. without 
having to look back on it. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. <laughs> and I know that you, yeah, you, you know, Grant has like a huge collection of time travel movies, <laughs> so I know that's like a big <laughs> kind of yeah. Little freaky, but yeah, no, but that's like that is that kind of entering another world kind of thing, right? stepping through the wardrobe into a different place, different time. Maybe it was a time travel machine. The wardrobe and all that. Yeah. Story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Anyone else? Well, I don't get as deep as you, Liz. <laughs> What's the first book that popped to mind to my mind was Harriet the Spy. That's great. I just loved Harriet. I just thought I just read that book and it was I was Harriet. And I find as an adult, I go back. And I read all my, my kids' books over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my favorites. Oh, me too. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just love reading that book. I always want to be Harriet. Mm-hmm. What, what is it that you identify with? Oh, she's gutsy. <laughs> you know, she's just a neat kid, and she does some neat things and uh, doesn't follow the, the, the rules. I, I love that. Not that I'm a rule breaker, because I'm not. But uh, she no, just, she's, not. <laughs> she's just a gutsy, neat kid. <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes it, can, it, it doesn't need you so much as, like, inspire you to to be a different way or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Or lets you live at that time yeah. mm-hmm. something that you wouldn't normally do. Right, right. right. But you can kind of try it on for size in a way, too. Mm. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> I always wanted a belt. <laughs> like hers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe there's something about the books we really like when we're little that, um, that has to do with something about who we really are because mm-hmm. we identify so much. I know when I was little, I loved Pippi Longstocking. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's just something about her that she's so independent and mm-hmm. so unusual. Mm-hmm. And she's got these good, the horse comes into the house, mm-hmm. of course, and the monkey. And they're yeah. just like, you know, totally different, <laughs> totally different uh, idea about how existence should be. There's there no none of the normal boundaries. And um, and there's this uh, imagination that mm-hmm. the, the kids that come to play with her they they are just um, uh, fascinated and this whole new world opens up to them and that's what like the story where this whole new world mm-hmm. opens up and and that that uh, thing in the beginning was the word and the word was God the word was with God um, that uh, there's something there must be something so um, profound about that <coughs> and story I'm s- still trying to connect the dots because uh, uh, it's like there's this imprint on us of, of you know the, even the title of this book the gospel is tragedy comedy and fairy tale it's like God, God's looking down and between the between the fall and the redemption there's this tragic comedy playing out of, among us humans you know and we're choosing our 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 word, our our mm-hmm. our speech, our our part in that play. It's like we're actually a a, a living novel or something, a living mm-hmm. story, and we get to choose yeah. what character we're gonna be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I like that idea of being a living novel. We are a novel. Each each one of us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have some choice, but not not all the choice. Sometimes we don't get to choose the plot twists we most of the time, probably. <laughs> right, right. One poem that I really love, um, it's called The Peace of the Wild Things by Wendell Berry. Oh, yeah, I've heard that one. And it reminded me of that passage that you were reading 
glimpses of joy through through experiences in nature too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the rest of you. <coughs> yeah. Um I came here with like a half formed question, so I'll try and right. form it as I speak. Um it seems like we're talking about this the sort of the weight of truth in fiction. Mm. Um but also said something that like really highlighted like it matters whether it's real and I think you were referencing one of the women like you, I know Pan isn't real yeah. therefore I'm not going to worship him and drawing that um, that fairy tale quote from Tolkien but also like and it means history mm-hmm. and I've been thinking about how I read the Bible mm-hmm. and some of those stories where maybe that that coming together of fairy tale and history is a little less clear or concrete or like there is evidence for either one people can come on either side of that and whether that matters that's a great question (laughs) (laughs) a really hard question I think yeah Um, I mean I think this is a yeah like an issue of um, huge debate (laughs) but does it matter can you just take the Bible as like just a good story that inspires us you know just you know, could it be like another the Lord of the Rings or whatever? Um, and I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to be one to pick part apart the parts of the Bible and say, you know, what genre there is genre at play and stuff there too. Like Jesus uses fictional stories for a reason, and we still can use those stories to get something from in our life. But I think that um, it doesn't have the same kind of bearing on your life, your life in a way. If if say you know, the whole Bible were fictional. Um, like, it could be inspirational, but it's not, like, something uh, that holds you to truth even when you don't feel it. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I guess, you know, I I might be inspired by reading The Lord of the Rings, but I don't feel that I have to, you know, live that life or whatever. <laughs> live the life of a, a hobbit climbing at Mount Doom or something, you know, like, I could have just sat down on that path. Oh my god, just a story, <laughs> whatever. Like, you know, so yeah, it helped, but but I think that um, the claim that it's true, and the thing is, it's not to say that it's not just a story, that it's a story that, like Beekner says, is um, has kept on happening ever since and is happening still. Like, it's not just in the past, it's something that explains who we are and who we are now <laughs> and who we will be, and so that we're living the story. It's not just, yeah, it's. It's not just a, a fairy tale or whatever, and I think all fairy tales reference truth to some extent, and all myths and different religions also like reference part of truth. But I think it's this thing that encompasses it, and it's really interesting to see how um, Lewis sort of came to to believe that. <laughs> and um, it's actually interesting because I I could say a lot about this, but I've been having this conversation over email with a friend in the last couple weeks who um, was an atheist. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, years ago when we were friends in, in university and he moved away, but he emailed me out of the blue and said, I think I might be becoming a Christian. <laughs> and I was like, what, you? What? And he, it's because of narrative, because he sees that there's something compelling about the Christian narrative, and he doesn't know exactly why, but he's looked at different narratives, and he's like, maybe Buddhism, but it doesn't seem to quite fit. 
So for him, there's something in the Christian story that is unique. So I, I guess it's looking at what are the unique claims um, in the Christian story that other other stories may not fully get at, you know, kind of. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of a rambling answer. <laughs> but do you have any thoughts? I should ask you and put you on the slide. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, I think it's a question at this point. I think, like, where it recently came up um, was in a discussion about Exodus mm-hmm. and me and I sort of having been told at various times when we were like, oh, this didn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. And yet we're talking about it and teasing out the different events as if it is right. historical. Right. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, does it matter? I don't know. Like, yeah. does it impact, does it change the things that you're describing in mm-hmm. terms of like igniting that moral imagination and mm-hmm. carrying it with you through your life? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like so there's something interesting in what you said about that story being one that's still happening so it's something you're reading but it's also something that if you're continually experiencing it it's maybe reinforcing that truth um yeah so yeah i guess it it places (coughs) a different kind of demand on your life in a way i guess to Mm -hmm. live in it to to live in accordance with it, but also like the possibility. Like, you know, you can read the story of Pan and get this feeling of holiness and worship, which I think is really cool. But, you know, I don't expect Pan to transform my life. <laughs> so, and to forgive my sins, like, the, you know, the basics of Christianity. Like, it has to be true for, for it to actually have any power to change you, you know? So I think it's, it's more than just like, it's not self-help, it's not inspiration. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so I think it, yeah, it makes, I don't know, I'd love to hear other people's thoughts. <laughs> this is, it's a, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about stuff that we were into as kids, because I remember, um, I think about grade five, six, I was introduced to Greek mythology, and I really, like, soaked that up and, and loved that, but, um, prior to that, um, I was really into comic books, and I still am, I guess, but like really into them. I still have all my comic books, even from like young, like even before grade six, but mm-hmm. still in mint condition and plastic in boxes, like issues one, two, whatever. Like they're like my little stock markets as a kid, um, um, you know, because I check them for the value. But anyway, what was I going to say? Oh, yes, characters that we like. I remember as a, as a young kid, why did I bring in mythology? Because in my mind it, c- it connects later on, but that was unnecessary. The point is, though, that um, yeah, the characters that we liked, I remember as a very young kid, X-Men, and you'd think that we're drawn to, like, you know, you know, like Wolverine, or uh, you guys know now by this time, but the big, the stereotype is the big, strong, whatever. And I loved, uh, my favorite character was Nightcrawler from the X-Men, and he was this um, and I grew up in a non-Christian home, and so it's interesting to me to think back because I grew up in a non-Christian home, but that imprint, I guess, that longing or that um, interest in Christianity was there through some, like, my exploration of certain characters and story arcs, and this character, he's, um, you know, he's, he's, he teleports, he looks like a demon, he's got blue skin, he's got sharp teeth, glowing eyes, 
but as a kid, he was he's the son of like a, uh, a count, and you guys know Mystique from the X-Men, right? Mystique, and he was abandoned as a child, kind of Moses kind of thing, and thrown into the water. And long story short, he was adopted by a Franciscan monastery. So he grew up in a monastery. And so I just loved that character as a kid, like this dualism between this demon-looking, um, you know, monster, but at the same time this his mutant power is very defensive that he's this Christ he's a Christian uh, in Germany and it's just it's really interesting to think about um, you know as a kid I was like oh that, that's a deep character and as as you know as kids we're interested in that deep stuff yeah. you know and we overlook that often right. yeah yeah it totally appalls me to go into the library these days and like look at the, the like you know young adults section or whatever primary fiction like, it's lacking oh, nowadays I think. why are kids reading this the, the horrible new stuff, stuff? Yeah. it's just like so i don't know just pandering to the lowest common denominator and and it's yeah it's sad because i think you know madeline Lingle talks a lot about this is that it's children's literature is really hard to write and anything you know, she was, she was teaching a class to someone, and this person was like, well, I thought that we were here to learn to write children's literature. And she was like, are you learning to write? And she's like, yes. And she's like, then you're learning to write children's literature. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think kids are capable of handling a lot more than we often think that they are. And I think books are really a way of helping kids um, explore complex themes in kind of a safe way, <laughs> I guess, too. Um, yeah. Comic books. I mean, they, we think of them as like silly, but uh, you know, there's a lot of depth to them back then. There's a reason yeah. they keep yeah. pumping out those Marvel movies, That's and people right. keep going to them because yeah. there's something, you know, there's something. Well, it's good versus evil and, mm -hmm. and triumph of the good guy, which is the gospel story, right? Mm -hmm. So and it's getting saved, right? So yeah. it's like the gospel comic. Melissa, I was just gonna. <coughs> sorry, my mic is <laughs> uh, I was just gonna comment on the. the Bible um, stories. Mm -hmm. um, I had the recent opportunity to be in Israel with some friends that aren't Christians, um, and, and some of them have some faith background, um, but um, one friend in particular, she grew up in Spain and went to a Catholic school all her life, but never remembers really reading the Bible. She said, maybe I was told to in school, but I don't actually remember reading it. And to her, it was always a book of made-up stories. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, um, but it was super interesting being there and being in different places and telling the Bible stories that went with those places because mm. they didn't have any knowledge of them. Mm. And my knowledge is fact-checking as I was going because I, you know, I, I wasn't there. I was there not with a tour. It was me telling the story. So it was, right. um, but it was at the end of it for her, it really helped the story to have truth. Like it, mm, interesting. The Bible became actually historical book to her. Mm. She still didn't necessarily believe in God, and that wasn't my purpose in, in telling the stories, per se, um, but she saw the book as a historical thing mm. because of the place and the mm. stories together, um, and, and it kind of made it real. Truth coming, yeah, sen sen that sense of truth coming through from the stories. So it was just a, a neat way to do that and, and see how, um, yeah, storytelling can really bring through truth in that way. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. As for your question, whether does it matter whether a story in the Bible, you know, whether we believe that's true or whether it's we believe that it's fit, 
fictitious and we're just supposed to get the main point out of it. Um, I think my, my thoughts are yes and no, that it does matter and no, but at the same time, maybe it doesn't matter. And, um, so, so if we were to take some of the stories in the scriptures, for example, Noah's Ark or the wind, is that a real incident that has, you know, is the Bible describing what actually occurred or is it supposed to be metaphorical, you know, a story that's supposed to give us a lesson mm. or a creation story? Is that a poetic uh, description of how God, uh, you know, how the world was created or is it a really actually descriptive way of God created the world? Mm. I think if the premises of thinking that those are just stories, uh, fictitious stories, not real real stories, um, but stories that are told in the scripture to make a point. If the premises of that thought is, it becomes unbelievable, that God cannot create the world in six days, or Mary cannot be conceived as a virgin because miracle doesn't exist and because God, you know, our idea of God does not have that kind of power and if that's the premises, then I think, then then it matters. Like it, then you know that's a problem, because then we're starting out from a premises, you know, very naturalistic premises mm-hmm. that God doesn't, you know, there's there's no power to God as such. I know some Christians who don't hold to the creation account as I would. Uh, you know, their account of their understanding of this, you know, uh, reading of the Genesis is not literal six days as I would hope to. But um, their premises does not come from um, not acknowledging that God is able to. Like, so, um, so their premises and my premises, it starts out at the same place, meaning that we both come into a place where we say God is almighty. That he can do, he can create the world in six days, as is as described in Genesis. That a virgin can be conceived. Uh, that Mary was a virgin and was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That Noah, you know, did actually, you know, you know, that God can, God did, God is more than capable of sending rain and you know, judging the world through the flood. So, so, but then, you know. For us to have a different reading on that passage is okay because we're, you know, he, that person's uh, reading on the Genesis is different not because of, not because they think that God is not capable of doing it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think in that regard, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, is it true? Is it important? Yes. But I don't know. I don't know how to coin it. But if your reading of that of that text, you know, is that your reading of the text is, let's say Genesis, for example, is you're reading it, you you believe that the genre is poetry, and so because it's poetry, you don't take it literally. Not because you don't believe that God is not capable. Mm-hmm. Because that, and so in that regard, I think that then it doesn't matter. It, it matters less. Right? Because we're agreeing to disagree about the genre of the text, not about God, who God is. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think premises of 
why you would choose to think that it's not a true story, but that it's actually just this, you know, fictitious story would matter so much more than whether your reading of that passage is, you know, understanding of that passage or that particular story is true or not. Like Exodus story. Why do you think that it's not true? Is it because you don't think God can split open the Red Sea? Mm. If he can, then is he really God? That's a really, that's a really helpful yeah. point. My take on it, and this might be kind of what you're saying, is mm -hmm. that some people are going to be more comfortable taking it literally, and others are going to be more comfortable taking it as a nice story and a guideline. And so by doing it the way it's done, it's going to reach more people because you can see it either way. Mm -hmm. So I might be more inclined to go the story and someone else might be more inclined to go literal. Mm -hmm. We can both get to the same point of believing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's complicated because I think that you can't say that about you know, everything in the Bible. <laughs> um, because mm, there's, no, there, there, I'm talking about the parables. Though. Well, yeah, I mean, the parables are presented in a way that like, they, they, didn't, they didn't happen, right? But I think that there's, mm. there's some things like that it's legitimate to say, okay, was this a story or was this oh, okay. like yeah. historical, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I think, that, I think we have to look at like, what does it say about God to believe one way or the other, too? I think that's part of it. Um, and how, how would it change, potentially change the, the Christian story? Um, and so, and, and that's what partly why we have the creeds and the larger body of the church to help us interpret. Um, so there are things that to be a Christian you have to kind of uphold, like basic gospel truths. Um, and then I think, yeah, it was interesting. I was listening to a Catholic priest on a podcast recently and he said like, this is why you shouldn't just let everyone have a Bible and interpret the way that they want because you can have the church to tell you like, this is what you should, you know, take literally. This is what is figurative. And obviously in the Bible, there are these different genres. And I think also um, the way that they wrote, it wasn't journalism. Like, that we put a certain expectation on the Bible that's a, like a, a modern sort of way of reading. Um, so, yeah, so, the, so some of that can come in too as well. But I think, yeah, I mean, it does, it does make a big difference. I would say even what we believe in Genesis can make a big difference um, you know if we if we believe we were created by God or we were just a product of chance I think that that does make a big difference but in how we live our lives um, so whether it's a literal seven days or um, not like that might make less difference but if you say like yeah it was it was just evolution and God wasn't involved I think that makes a much bigger difference so I guess it is a bit of a scale too. Melissa? I, one, of the, one of the questions my friend asked me when we were traveling, we were near the Wilkes and Fishes Church in Capernaum. And she was just like, so these miracle things, do you believe <laughs> they actually happen the way they say in the Bible? Or, mm -hmm. or do you think it could have happened in some other way? Mm -hmm. And I know where she was coming from. I said, well, you know, I wasn't there. So maybe there was something else to explain what went on. But I believe that God absolutely had the ability to do it exactly mm -hmm. like I said in the Bible. Right. And so for me, that, that changes how I see the story. It's mm -hmm. not that you couldn't see it in another way. You know, something else could have happened. Somebody else could have counted wrong or whatever. Right. But I believe in the God of the Bible that was completely capable of doing that. Right. So that just changes sort of your perspective on right. what you're, both what you're getting out of it, but what you're choosing to, how you're choosing to see it. So it, 
I guess in that respect it does make it. It doesn't mean that it's a bad thing that she's seeing it that way. It's just that she's not seeing God for who he is, I guess, mm-hmm. when she sees it that way. Yeah, and I've seen, you know, people take, like, the plagues in Egypt and, like, try and offer a scientific explanation for every single one like this is and it's like why are we doing that like it's to it is to remove god from the picture like you're saying jenny like it's not because oh like (laughs) trying to conduct historical well maybe it is partly but um but i think it yeah it's a valid question to ask i think oh it's a great it's it's an important question to think through but it does just just definitely change how you're perceiving what the the sort of the truth of the core of it is right Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Dropped a bomb in there. <laughs> it's a really good one. It's still one that I'm thinking through too. I think it's it's important for all of us to wrestle with. Um, yeah. And especially in a climate where where people say, you know, like all of well, all of these scriptures from different religions are equally true and you know. Or or you could just like worship Galadriel, whatever. <laughs> um and yeah, to actually to actually say like no, this actually happened about anything that we weren't there to see is well, actually about anything at all. <laughs> sometimes in this this world um, is is a pretty big claim to make. So yeah, yeah. I mean, what I'm talking about in this lecture is um, not so much about like fact. I guess <laughs> a lot of a lot of it isn't, but uh, but I think it all it pertains to that. That is what it's. What I'm saying is that these intuitions of truth that we have through fiction do point to something that really did happen. <laughs> um, yeah, they're all pointers, and not just to themselves, but to something else that's greater. Yeah. Joy. Um, Liz, just uh, one quick little um, example from my own life. Um, I graduated with a Bachelor of Science from mm-hmm. UBC long, long ago, <laughs> um, and as a person brought up in an evangelical church, uh, it was a real crisis of faith. Mm. Uh, even though I could never bring myself to go away from God, I wrestled and um, wondered about the miraculous nature mm. of the Bible and how can I believe that an axe can float right. or a woman can conceive right. and she was a virgin. Right. Um, I think uh, you know, C.S. Lewis was extremely helpful for me in this department. Mm. And uh, for me, um, when I began to see that God uh, could do anything he wished and uh, begin to have that faith of my childhood in a God, a creator God who made everything. Um, And I sort of shifted away from a purely scientific, almost very um, rigid um, evidence based according to our ability to collect data, uh, which I think was a very narrow view of reality, and it's just a slight glimpse of what is true. Not that I don't believe in science and technology, but it's it's such a limited understanding. It's a great contribution Mm -hmm. to that health and well-being of humankind. But when I shifted away from that box that science can put us in, into to an understanding of the God of the star fields, as um, Bruce Coburn was saying, right. one of my favorite guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, suddenly that stuff didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. It's funny, you know, and I could read scripture, possibly from what you were talking about, Jenny, more of a sense of a beautiful myth that's true, mm-hmm. uh, without worrying about 
did God create everything in the literal six or seven days? Like it suddenly didn't matter so much because we're missing the point. Mm. If that makes any sense? Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense, yeah. And so I was able to shift to a place of faith, right. even as a scientist at that time. Right. And the two didn't conflict. <coughs> because I thought that Christian faith answered different questions than science was asking. And I became dissatisfied with the answers that science was able to generate, and I moved on from science. Yeah, that's a really helpful point, and I think um, that we so easily reduce truth to what's scientifically verifiable. So it's kind of reductionistic <coughs> into something is, yeah. that our small brains right. can handle, right. and yet God is so much greater. It's God is a great mystery. Yeah. And I think that science can also open us up to that mystery. Um, and yeah, Madeline Lingle is quite interesting. Again, she's a very avid interest in science and as well as faith. Um, and so she, she really she doesn't see those two kind of opposed like I, don't, I see them very as at peace. Yeah. You know, that yeah. they're not um, being a scientist and a Christian right. is not a conflict. Right, totally. Yeah, I think that's that's really important, um, and I think I think that's that is the position of faith to say like I don't understand all that's going on here, and I don't have to like, you know, know every single thing to be able to receive this as God's word, you know. So it's almost something more of the heart or the spirit mm-hmm. than the mind. I think it, I mean I think the mind is involved for, sh- yes, for sure. Yeah, uh, it's holistic. Yeah, but sometimes science, I think we can get so much into our mind, and the mind is sort of the only gone. the only way to measure things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yet, there's so much more to what is real, right, and true, and good. Right. Right. Yeah, and I, I find C.S. Lewis's story really interesting because he was this hyper intellectual kind of person, and yet he had these experiences that really. Touched mm-hmm. his heart, like the core of him, and, it, and yeah, joy. and yeah. it had to be both. You know, it had to be both something that was mm-hmm. logical, right. <laughs> Christianity, as well as something that answered that part of his longing. Right. So I think it really needs to. It needs to. It needs to be a whole human experience <laughs> coming because it's it. our nature. Right. Make right. Being made in the image of God. Right. We're not just. Yeah. The cognitive. Not just cognitive, but not just emotional either. And people have That's a tendency right. to kind of yeah. often fall off on one side or the That's other. Right. Yeah. And say yeah. like, well, can it just like just be about feelings and like <laughs> whatever, you know, and then or to be like, Okay, I have to know the details for everything. Otherwise it's not true. Mm-hmm. And and we do need both of those. I think. Look like you had a comment. Yeah. Um Yeah. On that note. It's so it's like, um, yeah, with science and stuff like that, I was just thinking about like the new atheist movement, for example, like uh, Christopher Hitchens or the late Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and so forth. And when I listen to like a lot of their arguments, um, a lot of it's very pragmatic and there's a lot that I can go, yeah, no, there's some compelling stuff there. There's a lot of room for doubt. There's no <coughs> question. But it's funny because when I compare, I think... You know, a lot of those guys, they're like geniuses, they're from affluent homes, they are very intelligent and they've written books and they're making millions of dollars and they're at the pinnacle of um, academic thought. And Anyway, um, you know, their ideas are compelling, but I'm like, <coughs> it really only caters to 
like if you are intelligent enough to understand and you can buy the books and you can read them that yeah. you know Richard Dawkins he's like if you just understood the uh, the well that's my Dawkins <laughs> but um, yeah it's a very narrow bandwidth to me but then I look at the gospel and I think of Jesus and how he you know woe to the rich not I don't think you're rich that's bad but like you're not going to get it he appealed to the downtrodden, the orphan, the widow, and so so on and so forth. And I just think, so to me, there's something to that and the fact that, like, as kids, we all relate to, you know, fairy tales, and we all relate to mythological stories, and we all aspire to some sort of make-believe, utopian ideal. C.S. Lewis talked about that, like the fulfillment of heaven is the fulfillment. It's where all these ideas converge. But as we get become adults, we lose that. And... So my point is, it's just there's something to that, I think, where Christianity appeals to those that, um, like, if you if you can't, if your idea, your concept, doesn't work with an orphan in Calcutta, on the streets of Calcutta, it doesn't work. I mean, in a broad sense, right? Like, you, you I don't think any, any people in leper colonies are going to be reading Richard Dawkins' books, <laughs> you know what I mean? But people everywhere are going to be aspiring towards, you know, like the, the, say the story of the Buddha, like the, um, you know, um, you see suffering and you think about what that means in the world and, and with the meaning of it, everybody can relate to that. Does that make sense? Everybody aspires to, to, um, I think is united in that, like they long for something. Yeah. Yeah. So talking about those deeper kind of human questions and yeah, yeah. When I think about it's not pragmatic, is what I'm saying. It's not a concrete thing. Yeah. It's very abstract. I but think it's real. Yeah, I think I think with like the new ideas and stuff, it just seems like a very narrow way to live. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, um, and like it can be an attempt to kind of kick magic out of the world in a sense, which is sad. Which is sad to me. And I think I think that the world is enchanted, and we need to be able to to see that again. You know, and with, and, I, and I guess that's probably what Jesus talks about. You must become like a little child, mm-hmm. you know, like to go through the looking glass again. Yeah. Um, and children have that attitude of just, you know, I don't, I don't think kids are like as gullible as we think that they are. I think they have, they can have a recognition for truth that we sometimes don't have, um, and and a, a willingness to accept something that seems like fantastic to us, um, but may, may be true in a way that we don't always capture as, as adults. I remember when I was young, I read um, uh, Corey Ten Boone's book, Corey Ten Boone's book, The Hiding Place. Mm-hmm. And um, do you remember when she was in the prison camp and she had that bottle of vitamins? Mm-hmm. And it kept lasting. They right. couldn't believe how long this lasted. And I remember thinking, oh, fishes and loaves. Yeah, okay. Happens with a bottle of vitamins. Mm-hmm. Happens with fishes and loaves. Right. Right. And that really had a huge effect on me. You know, it's, yeah. 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 Yeah, and to believe that yeah, miracles weren't just like yeah, once upon sure, a time. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about those, um, you know, Hitchens and Dawkins that uh, they're angry, um, they're reactionary, and the people who are drawn and really they become ardent fans, and they use it as a club mm-hmm. to club down the naivete of everybody who would buy this stuff, and. Um, it's almost like they're angry that they that th- they think this isn't true. 
and they're so angry that it's not true that it couldn't possibly be true that they have to you know write these long uh, erudite treaties on on why it's why it's a scam mm. but they really really it's it's like the w a wounded child who mm. really wishes mm. they can't bear to admit uh, invulnerability how much they long for that miraculous of the vitamins replenishing, uh, or you know, there, there's something there that they've cut it off, and they're so pissed, you know, mm -hmm. that they're gonna just they become weapons mm -hmm. against that tr that that possibility of this glorious transcendent something, mm -hmm. and they go to great lengths to um, come up with some kind of system and. And uh, like uh, people that are also angry, mm. somehow or something, buy it and and use it as bludgeons mm. <laughs> against. Because I have a friend who, who's a very intelligent atheist, and you know Dawkins is his hero, mm. and and yet he can't stop you know the conversation. Like you know, well, I just can't believe, and I can't you know. But he, does, he won't quite give up because there's <coughs> maybe this chance, which he won't admit, mm. spends all his effort mm. on saying why it's not true. Right. It's like he does protest too much, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like mm. secretly, desperately, and this unacknowledged part of himself wants it to be true, this, this fairy tale. Mm. I think there might be, in a person like that, almost a fear that it is true and if they believe it, they're afraid to believe um, and so they go all out against it um, in a way it's almost like people who are homophobic mm -hmm. they might be just sort of afraid maybe that's really who they are but they don't want to be and so they rail against it. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. <coughs> There's safety in that anger. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting point. <laughs> Not really thought about that that way before. Um, but yeah, it's definitely been interesting. Interesting in talking with this one friend who's sort of changing his perspectives on some things with with atheism and and saying you know, no, like I've always had this connection with narrative, um, and always. You know, struggled every day to, to with nihilism and feeling like my life doesn't have meaning. But like, I'm wondering if maybe there is, is actually more, and mm. and it's it's so interesting you can actually go through that process with someone as they um, they talk about that. And uh, he's probably I don't know, he's probably into the new atheist. So I wouldn't be surprised. But you know, I think that there are people who you know like uh, really feel that religion is harmful. Like I think that is part of it. But I think that there is. Yeah, I think there's a sadness <laughs> of just, like, you know, he said every day, you know, he still struggles with these thoughts about not wanting to live and mm. things like that. And, um, it's hard to actually live out a life where there's, like, no wonder left anymore. Mm -hmm. um, to live realistically out of that, I think, is, is pretty hard. And it, it seems, like, not realistic um, to people to say that this could exist. <laughs> But I think it's actually not realistic to say that it doesn't. <laughs> like, um, that there's not something beyond what you can imagine. 
Well, thanks everyone for coming and for talking. It was great to have you as always. Thank you. Thank you.